Good morning, brothers. Good to see you today. Folks, uh, we have graduated from First and Second Samuel to First Kings. So you can open your Bibles to page 591, and we continue the story of David, but we're going to pick it up in First Kings. The reason we sang that opening hymn uh, is that it's an ascension hymn, and today is Ascension Day. Ascension Day always occurs 40 days after Easter, because 40 days after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples saw him go up physically to leave and go up into the heavens. And uh, it's a very, very important day for us. In fact, those of you who want to celebrate it tonight, you can come and hear some very fine musicians. They'll be in the sanctuary at what time, Dan? 7 o'clock tonight. It's kind of a Bach festival, but it's about the life of Christ, but it's celebrating the ascension. And uh, if you have friends who love, especially classical music or love Bach, uh, tonight would be a wonderful opportunity. You rarely hear a better performance of Bach than you'll hear tonight in the sanctuary. Come join us. But uh, they're celebrating the ascension. Why? It's a very important day for us as Christians. Because Jesus not only is our resurrected Lord, don't stop there, He's our resurrected and exalted Lord. And uh, in the ascension, he is exalted to the right hand of God and enthroned in the highest place. So ascension day is the day of his enthronement at the right hand of God. Now, of course, that's important to us because we love Jesus and we're very excited about his enthronement. If anybody ever earned it, (laughs) it would be the Lord Jesus. He is enthroned as king of all the kings. But from his enthronement, of course, you know, ten days later, which we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday, 10 days from today. From that throne, He and the Father send us the greatest gift, the promise of Abraham, the promise of the Old Testament, that we would receive the Spirit one day. And Jesus, from, the, from that enthronement, uh, sends us the Holy Spirit. And in fact, when the Spirit came and people were speaking in tongues and flames of fire were on their heads, Peter had to explain it. Everybody thought that Disciples were drunk. Jesus, uh, Peter said, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They ain't drunk. They may be hung over, but not drunk. Uh, he said, they're not drunk. This is the gift of God the Father and God the Son as a result of Jesus' enthronement. He goes up to pour out on us the Spirit. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit himself beyond all measure. But when he's enthroned from his position on high, he now anoints us. And we become little kings and and little prophets and little priests. So we're anointed with the Spirit as a result of His enthronement on Ascension Day. Also, we know that because He's at the right hand of God, we have access to God. When Jesus went up into heaven, He took human flesh with Him. So in the very council of the Trinity Himself, humans now are perfectly represented in the incarnate, glorified Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So now we have uh, God-man to whom we can go, through whom we can speak to God the Father. We have a personal relationship with God because of His enthronement. So we have access uh, to the Father through them. We also know that Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, He's going to go to another place there to do what? Prepare a place for us. So Think about it. He's been up there 2,000 years, (laughs) and he loves you. He's got all the power in the universe, and he's been preparing your place. I don't know if you've ever been to some really fancy places in the world, some of the places, palaces, you know, Versailles and other places around the world where people spend loads, bucket loads of resources on their place. Well, some of you have, and they're very impressive, but it will not compare to what the King of Kings has prepared for you. All as a result of His enthronement on Ascension Day. So we take great delight on Ascension Day. Don't, don't miss it today. And it's appropriate that we talk about David today. We'll come back to that whole idea of Ascension uh, as we come to the conclusion here. Let me just point out what, where we're going. Uh, thanks to Barton for teaching last week. And today we're, we're covering the death of David. And you'd think that'd be the end, but it's really not because we can't conclude Amen study of the life of David without spending our last time together, looking at the New Testament perspective on David. That's what we're going to do next time. 
So we'll survey what the New Testament says about David and David's importance to us in the New Testament. So we'll come back to that next time. And remember, next fall, when we pick back up in September, we're going to start our study of Romans. Uh, last time we did Romans, I think it, think it took three years. We ain't going to do three years this time. We'll see what we can do in a year or maybe 18 months. But we're going to go through Romans, which, of course, uh, is a great place uh, to study just the heart, the core of the gospel and its ethical implications and the meaning of the mission of Christ around the world. What a great place for us to be next year. So we'll look forward to that. Well, let's dig in in 1 Kings. And uh, in terms of the author of 1 Kings, we don't really know for sure who wrote it. Uh, It seems that there's clearly uh, some editorial work here to make 1 Kings follow on 2 Samuel 24 quite naturally. Uh, And in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are actually First Kingdom, First Book of the Kingdoms, Second Book of the Kingdoms, Third Book of the Kingdoms, and Fourth Book of the Kingdoms. So First and Second Kings is actually Third and Fourth Kings in the Greek version of the Old of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, now, the, in, in our version, that's separated out First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But in uh, the Hebrew Bible, First uh, and Second Kings really comes at the end of the prophets. And the reason for that is the, the tradition, we can't prove this is true, but the Jewish tradition was Jeremiah wrote First and Second Kings. And we don't know that for sure. There's nothing in the text itself that shows us that. But that was the tradition, and therefore it was one of the prophetic books. You said, that's kind of odd to have this historical book thrown in with the prophets. Well, I think we're going to see why that is. Because this book actually, these books actually talk to us about the prophets in ways that are very, very significant, including the text today. Well, let's look at it now. David is approaching the end of life. At the end of the text we're going to read, he actually dies. And right up to his death, uh, there's all kinds of drama. Well, you would expect that, wouldn't you? You've gotten to know David well enough. Wherever he goes, there's drama. So we're going to have some more drama on his deathbed. Let's look and see what it is. First uh, Kings chapter one verse one. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, "Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm." So they sought for. A, I think it's a wonderful solution. So they. <laughs> So they sought for a beautiful, you know, say, honey, I'm really cold. I need some help. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, Adonijah... The son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself uh, for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Rai and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now therefore, come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? 
Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, did not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass... When my Lord the King sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My Lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened calf, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priests. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Medneah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelothites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought down to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelothites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. 
Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way, and Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Okay, let's take a look at several aspects of this chapter, and then we'll look at a few verses in chapter 2 in a few moments. First of all, in these first four verses, let's notice that death matters. It matters. Your death matters. David's death matters. David had, in his lifetime, built a very impressive kingdom. He had ruled, you know, seven years south of Jerusalem and 33 years in Jerusalem itself. Over his 40-year kingly career, uh, he had quelled the enemies to the south, the Edomites, and got them under control. He had quelled the enemies uh, to the east across the Jordan River, the Moabites and the Ammonites. He had put to flight the enemies to the north, the Syrians. And then, of course, the Philistines were largely along the coast uh, of the Mediterranean on David's uh, west side. And they were put in their place and brought under submission The Jebusites had been conquered in Jerusalem and David had taken hold of the holy hill and had control of the entire kingdom. He had expanded the boundaries of Israel. They had security on all sides. And uh, that's just an amazing accomplishment over 40 years of being king. David was a great leader. And uh, in addition to that, although God would not allow David to build the temple because he was a man of war, Blood was all over his hands, and God wanted his son Solomon, a man of peace, to build the temple. David had already begun collecting all the materials from Lebanon and all over the world to bring the best materials in for the construction of the temple. And if you have your ESV study Bible, you know you can look you know, on page 594, 595, and you begin to get a little pictorial idea of what Jerusalem looked like by the time Solomon finished it with it. So David had a massively significant career from almost any perspective uh, in which you examine. However, here on his deathbed, you see that it doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter what accomplishments you had in life. It's coming to an end, boys. And it happens before we know it. I mean, any, any of your fathers or brothers or friends have been on their deathbeds, if you have a chance to talk with them. It all happens so fast. Life just blows by. And when you get to the end, the, the, the only thing that really matters is your relationship with God. You can have all these accomplishments. You can pile up all these goods, but you're not going to keep them. They're going over to somebody else. And as we see at the end of Second Kings, basically all that David worked for ends up in the hands of the Babylonians. In fact... Most scholars think this is why First and Second Kings is written to explain why in the world God allows the Babylonians to end up with this kingdom. Did not God promise to David that it would never end? And yet you get to the end of Second Kings, and it it appears as though clearly First and Second Kings is written after or during the exile. So. Whoever wrote it, Jeremiah or somebody else, is trying to explain theologically how this can be. And when you look at First and Second Kings, of course, you see a whole history, 400 years, of abuse by these kings who were basically wicked. And some of them were very great from the world's point of view. But, but at the end, all is lost because of their disobedience. Well, even if you're obedient... You're going to come to an end in your life, and David does here. And you, you can see how graphically this is described. Can't get warm, you know? And that's the way it goes. 
You know, when it comes toward your end, your circulation's not going to work very well. Your feet are always going to be cold. And that coldness just starts to creep right up your legs. And pretty soon everything in your body goes cold. You're gone. And it's already starting to happen to David. And obviously a man wrote this because when he describes his death, he says, look, here's how bad it was. They tried to arouse David with the queen model of all Israel. And they took her clothes off and she crawled in bed with David and nothing happened. He's really old. <laughs> They're saying they gave him, they didn't give him a shag rug, they gave him Ab- Abishag, the Shunammite. <laughs> and she was all over him. And David's just sitting there. And you see this great verse uh, in verse 4 And the king knew her not. Yeah. That was in the days before Cialis. Isn't that a great advertisement? You know, this, this could give you a heart attack. You, your left arm could fall off and your brain could go dead. And, and everybody said, I don't care. Give me that stuff. Uh. <laughs> David is cold, <laughs> unresponsive. Just, you can see, he's in bad shape here. Uh, he can't even respond to this beautiful woman. Uh, everybody needs to be prepared to die because it's going to happen to you. And uh, you can see here that David uh, was not uh, properly prepared. How does this happen? How do men spend all these years and not make the proper preparations uh, for handing over the kingdom? And David had not made it public what was going to happen. He, didn't, he, made, he had a succession plan, we know from the text. He secretly told Bathsheba that her son was going to be the king. And Nathan the prophet knew about it, but nobody else seemed to know about it. David didn't plan succession after his... Why in the world would a man overlook that? How how could you miss that? Well, here's what happens. You get so absorbed in your little three score and ten. You get so absorbed in your life, you cannot see beyond your own life. It's a form of narcissism. You're only thinking about this world only means something if you're in it. And so you don't imagine the world without you in it. Now, I realize this is a difficult work. But for those of us who have eternal life, and we know it, that enables you to look beyond your own life and to make provisions for the next generation, make provisions for the, the areas in which you've ministered and have great concern. You, part of your work is to take care of the succession. You know, there's a sense of which you can say in your business, you don't know how well you did until you leave it. And let's see what kind of leaders have been raised up. Let's see who takes it to the next generation. In your ministries, we don't really know how you've done until you leave them. Let's see what kind of leadership is there when you've left. Let's see what happens to the ministry later. Have you cultivated it beyond your own uh, ministry there, your own service, wherever it is? Same thing with families. Um, We'll see. You know, know, some people say you don't really know how well you've done until your grandchildren are growing up. and that's really the way it is because that shows that you're thinking beyond your own little selfish life. And David had a hard time with it. And you can see it with his children in general. And here you have another child who's poorly reared, uh, Adonijah. So death matters. You need to make provisions for it. If you don't have a will, go get one. There's some people in this room right here who can help you do that. Get your will in order. Get your estate in order. Get your last testimony in order. What do you want to say? to your loved ones at your death. Get that written out. Have that statement ready. Let that be your lasting legacy, what you care about. And in your estate, be sure that your children and your grandchildren see what you care about by the things you give your money to. Now, if you don't have very much money, of course, you might want to just give it all to your, uh, your heirs. But some of you have more money than your heirs need. And you can just spoil heirs with too much money. You can also teach them a lesson if you'll... If you'll uh, show that you're giving not only to them, just in the family, but you care about the world, you care about Memphis, you care about the church, and they can see that even in your estate. And, you know, I've said to those of you who are in Second Presbyterian, you know, we have our Second Presbyterian Foundation for Missions. It's all for external work, for mission here in Memphis and around the world. You know, why don't you just adopt the foundation as one of your children? You know, so you've got three kids, uh, Instead of dividing up three ways, divide it up four ways, you know, if you don't have a large estate. That's one way in which you can even show your children 
look, I love you, but, but I'm devoted to the kingdom of God. And so you want to show that in everything that you do. Make plans. Uh, be, ready, be ready to leave tonight. How about noon? Let's be ready to leave and have your plans laid. David did not do this. Death matters. It mattered to him. God graciously caught him again. David's always being caught and helped by the Lord. We are too. But let's, learn, let's take a page out of this book and learn what we ought to learn. Secondly, verses 5 through 10, notice that fathering matters. It's an amazing statement. Now, Adonijah was the fourth son. Uh, Amnon was the oldest. And you remember he committed um, incest. And then Absalom, the third son, killed the first son. So the first son's gone. Kiliab was the second son. We don't know what happened to him, but we're quite sure by this time he's dead. The third son, Absalom, of course, was killed in the battle. So he's gone. So Adonijah's number four. So Adonijah thinks, hey, this thing belongs to me now. I'm the rightful heir of the dynasty. And you'll notice what it says about him in verse 5. He exalted himself. He said, I will be king. He said, I will be king. Now, that's a very significant verse because if you look back in 1 Samuel in particular, you can see how kings are exalted. The Lord speaks who shall be king. And he does it through his prophet, Samuel. And he tells Samuel whom to anoint. And the prophet comes and says, you're the man. And Saul didn't expect to be the man, and Samuel picked him. And David certainly didn't expect to be the man as the seventh son, seventh or eighth son, and Samuel picked him after all the others were passed by. So God's the one who raises His kings up. And gentlemen, it's the same with us. You you don't, in God's work, no matter what it is, you don't take your raw ambition and say, you know, I want to do that. I'm going to push myself into this. I realize in, in, the, in the professions, often that's the way things happen. The ambitious people are often the ones that end up at the top. And certainly uh, there's part of that that's not so bad. You want someone who does aspire uh, to lead, wants to take the burdens of leadership. That's great. And in fact, the Bible says uh, that a man who desires to be an elder, it's a good thing. So you want someone who desires to lead to lead, otherwise they'd just be completely worn out. However, there's another element here that, especially in spiritual leadership, you have to wait till the Lord speaks up. The Lord uh, lifts you up in leadership. And there has to be an updraft around you that you sense the Holy Spirit's updraft and the updraft of God's people to put you in positions of leadership. Adonijah completely ignored that. He just claimed it for his own. He considered it his right, uh, his, his uh, uh, privilege, and he's completely wrong. Uh, his father, uh, verse 6, though, you see, and here's the main point I want to make. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Is that not amazing? What a statement on David's fathering. Never even asked him, why did you do this? Why did you do that? What causes men not to intervene on their children? I'm not real sure. I think there are multiple answers to that. Sometimes we just don't want to be unpopular with our children. We don't like conflict. And so we don't want to conflict with these children that we want to love us and have affection for us. And so... We'll just try to keep them happy all the time and never even challenge them by saying, why have you done this or so? Sometimes it's out of laziness. We want to get to work on time and stay at work as long as we want to stay. And if you get into conflict or try to get into the weeds with your children, you know you're just going to have hours of obligations of parenting on your hands. And so we're a little lazy. Well, it's not completely lazy because we're workaholics. But we want to get onto what we really want to do. Let mama handle the other. David was doing something like this, and it paid horrible dividends in his life. You can see it with Amnon, you can see it with Absalom, and now you see it with son number four, poorly disciplined sons. 
And when you look at the legacy that you're going to leave, it, and I, I say this especially to, to you who have children at home, if you look at the legacy you're going to leave, it's going to, your largest legacy is the way that you train and discipline your own children. And that has to be with expectations, with form and structure, with God's law as your guide, but with the grace of the gospel every day so that they see that the one who's disciplining them is one who really loves them and cherishes them, that you don't hate them. It's actually because you love them that you discipline them. And when you look at David's legacy and the wisdom of Solomon and how the temple was built and Solomon's great kingdom, of course, he had problems at the end, as you know. But David did some good things with Solomon, and we'll see that in the next chapter. And Solomon ends up being a man of wisdom, as you can see in the book of Proverbs. And Solomon tries to teach his children. And you see that in Proverbs. The Proverbs are actually Solomon's advice to the next generation as a man of wisdom. That's what we're supposed to be doing, discipling our own children. That's the reason, for example, that in the qualifications for elders and deacons, one of the uh, prominent qualifications is that a man manage his household well. Because the way in which you learn to disciple the little ones in your household, that's the way you're going to be discipling people in the church. It may not be immediately evident, but what the Bible is suggesting is that in the long run, it'll all come out. That if you don't ever ask, why did you do thus and so to your children, you'll never ask one of your brothers in the church, why did you do thus and so? And we need to be asking each other why you do thus and so. And especially elders need to be doing that. Spiritual leaders need to be doing that. So the household is meant to be the training ground for the large household of the church and even the larger household of the world itself, that we intervene and lead and we're willing to take on confrontations. We're willing for people to hate us, at least for a moment, with our children. If you're not willing to be unpopular with a teenager, don't even attempt it. That job's not for sissies. You have to be willing to be unpopular. You have to be someone who really loves them. And David didn't love as he ought to love. And you see it there. He, just an amazing thing. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Now, notice the assets that uh, Adonijah had uh, in verse uh, 6. He was a very handsome man. And then he was the heir apparent. He was born next to Absalom, so he's the next oldest. And then notice that he had company. He conferred with Joab, who was a mighty commander of the army, and with Abiathar the priest, who was the descendant of Eli and had great legacy uh, and reputation. They followed Adonijah. So he had great looks. He uh, had a company of men around him. He seemed to have the right of inheritance as the oldest surviving son. So he goes down to Enrogel, verse 9, which is just south of Jerusalem. It's kind of where uh, the two valleys come together, and there's a little creek there, and there's another source of water. So he goes to Enrogel to enthrone himself. But notice whom he did not invite, verse 10. He did not invite God's man, the prophet Nathan. So forget God's word and do it my way. That's what I had not, that's what. Uh, Adonijah was doing. Notice whom else he left out. He left out Benaiah because Benaiah was carrying the sword for David and was the leader of his mighty men. And he didn't bring Solomon. Why? Obviously, Adonijah knew the secret that David had said within the palace that Solomon was going to be his man. So Adonijah leaves him out. The other brothers he brought left Solomon out. Obviously, it's intrigue and it's an attempt to destroy who would be the rightful heir. Fathering matters, ladies and gentlemen, and we must be the fathers that God wants us to be. Now, thirdly, look at verses 11 through 27, and you'll see that prophets matter. This is an amazing text. David is a great man. He is the gold standard for all the kings who follow him. And you'll see as you read through First and Second Kings someday that they either followed in the ways of David, their father, or they didn't follow in the ways of David, their father. David's the standard of what a king's supposed to be. You would expect that David would be the one, by his unaided self, apart from God, that he would be the one to correct this. But no, 
Look who solves the problem, Nathan the prophet. Now, going back to what I said a few moments ago, you would think that First and Second Kings is about kings. It's actually not so much about kings. It's about prophets. And actually, it's not even about the prophets. It's about God. In First and Second Kings, what you see as Israel and Judah will both go into exile is that God is the sovereign king of Israel. He's the sovereign king of Judah. He's the king of his people, not any human king. In First and Second Kings, you get the name of God, the Lord God, 500 times. The writers are making it really clear, God is the sovereign one. And if you want to know why you went into exile, it's because you disobeyed him. That's the whole point of First and Second Kings. You have 21 kings in the north, not a one of them was a good king. Not a one. You have 21 kings in the south, and you probably have seven that were decent, two or three that were prominent. All the others were bad kings. So it's a disaster. You want to know why you got exiled into Babylon? You want to know why the Davidic dynasty took a huge uh, siesta? It was because of your disobedience. That's what the authors are saying. And they show that God is the center of this story. He's the sovereign one, and He speaks through His prophets. Now, the reason I say that is you have these 42 kings, but in First and Second Kings, you also have 10 prophets mentioned, Nathan being one of them. You have Jehu, you have Hold of the prophetess, you have Isaiah mentioned, Micaiah, the great uh, prophet, a little story about Micaiah. And then you have these 15 chapters or so about Elijah and Elisha who take center stage in First and Second Kings. They're the ones who confront Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked, most wicked king, uh, well, maybe almost the most wicked king in the northern kingdom. It's the prophets. In First Kings, you have a king mentioned that you probably wouldn't even remember unless you read it recently, named Omri. In the archives that we have available from uh, ancient history, Omri was a great king. He was very significant on the stage of world history. Do you know how many verses you have about Omri in First Kings? Nine verses. Uh, Manasseh was a wicked king, but he ruled for 55 years in Israel. You know how many verses you got on Manasseh? 18. But look at the chapters that are given to the prophets. And here's the point. This kingdom is not ruled by human flesh. This king is ruled by God and His Word. And He speaks His Word through His prophets. And that's how God brings us along through history, keeping us, correcting us, and disciplining us. It's by His Word through His prophets. Now look here with Nathan. Nathan goes uh, to Bathsheba. He sets up the plan to go speak to the king. Nathan sets it up. Nathan goes in after her and speaks the Word. Nathan actually rescues the kingdom. Well, actually God rescues it, but it's through His man, the prophet. Now, who are you? You're prophets. You remember when Pentecost came? Peter says, do you remember the promise of Joel that your sons and daughters will prophesy? Old men will have visions. Young men will have dreams. You'll all be prophets. Do you realize what happened as a result of Pentecost? We all became prophets. We're the anointed prophets on the planet. Do you know what the big point of current contemporary history is? It's God. He's the sovereign Lord of all history. Do you know who His messengers are? You. You're the ones who have been, you're the Nathans who have been set apart to speak His Word. That's the story we get here. Prophets matter, verses 11 through 27. Now, we've got to move on. Let's come to verses 28 through 40, and you see that repentance matters. Yeah, David screws up royally. Again, David seems to have a habit of this. He counts men when he should be trusting God. He has an affair with Bathsheba when he should be out fighting battles. He sends Uriah the Hittite to be killed when he should be honoring Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men. David's messing up over and over again. But David knows something. He knows that no matter how bad your sin is, there's always a way home. Gentlemen, please, no matter how badly you've sinned, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, yesterday, this morning before you left the house, no matter how badly you sin, there's always a way home. Do you know what the way is? Repentance. God provides a way back for you because He loves you. But there is a way back of repentance, and, and you repent because you trust the Lord. 
David turns to God because he trusts that God will deal with him mercifully. He wouldn't turn to an angry God. He would run from him. God is angry. He is holy. He is wrathful. But you're his son. And he has great compassion upon you. And he values you and and loves you. David knows this. He's got the secret. So David repents. First of all, in verses 28 through 31, we keep our promises. David said, you're right. Call Bathsheba to me. And he recalls the promise that he made. And he's going to live up to it. He's been a lousy father. He's been a lousy leader for succession. And he says, I'm going to take care of business. And this guy who couldn't even arouse himself to have sex with the most beautiful woman, he can arouse himself to repent. This is an amazing story. This guy was, looked like he was just gone. He was cold, out, no good. And look at him arouse because he wants to repent and come back to the Lord. He sees the mistakes and the sins that he has committed. But then notice in verses 32 through 40 that God keeps His promises. And this is the, the bottom line. God keeps His promise to sustain the dynasty of David. And He's not going to do it through presumptuous Adonijah. He's going to do it through his, the, the man of peace, Solomon. The man of wisdom. The man that God has anointed. And God sees to that. And He always will. And why do you think that the line of David stayed intact until Jesus appears incarnate? in Matthew chapter 1, because of God. And God preserves us in history and keeps that line and that dynasty going, even through the exiles and even through the Greek uh, uh, oppression and even through the Roman oppression. God keeps the dynasty and God keeps His promises. It's an amazing thing. And you'll notice that when God puts His son, Solomon, the son of David, on the mule and rides into Jerusalem, that the whole city rejoices. You couldn't miss it here in this text. They rejoice so much that the earth splits. There's a trembling of the ground because people are so thrilled that God has anointed His Son, Solomon. And that's God's Son in a certain sense in the Old Testament. God has anointed the one that He wants to be king. And there's great joy. But notice, see, verses 41 through 53, that our enemies tremble, and they do. When Adonijah and all his guests heard the uproar in Jerusalem that the true king had been anointed, all of the enemies of the kingdom tremble and they come bowing before Solomon and asking for mercy. That's the way it is when God exalts his king, Solomon, all the other uh, imposters must come and bow before the true king. It's an amazing story of how God takes over the dynasty. Now, let's look at chapter 2, and we'll, we'll finish our lesson for today. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Let's stop there. Notice that the kingdom of God matters. Roman numeral 5, the kingdom of God matters. God is establishing His kingdom. How does He do it? First of all, he does it by telling Solomon to walk with the Lord, verses 2 through 4. Now, this language in 2 through 4, you can look in your footnotes in the ESV study Bible, and you'll see that that whole language is taken from a number of verses in Deuteronomy. So, you know David knows the Bible. He knows Deuteronomy. He knows the meaning of the covenant that God made with us. And he knows how we're to behave as men, and he knows how kings are to behave. And he says to Solomon, look, the key to your prosperity as a man, to be a man, means to walk faithfully with the Lord. And David had not always walked faithfully with the Lord, although overall you'd say he walked faithfully with the Lord, except in the affair of Uriah the Hittite. That's the way the Bible describes him. So he wasn't perfect. But David, the trajectory of David's life was to walk with the Lord. And he says, Solomon, this is the key to your life. 
doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter how many friends you have. doesn't matter how many awards and plaques you have on your wall. The key to life is walking with the Lord. And this is the way you're going to establish your kingdom. So when you establish your legacy, the key to it is internal. That's where it starts. Be sure your heart is in with the Lord, that what He desires, you desire. His ambition is your ambition. His agenda is your agenda. That's what makes you successful. You can leave the results with Him. So that's the first thing that David is teaching. Now, you can in, on your outline, you can str- scratch verses uh, 5 through 12 there because they show up in the next section. And here David shows him to lead for the Lord. Let's look at these verses. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there's also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So we establish the kingdom by leading for the Lord. Now, what is David saying here? He's saying, Solomon, you're a man of peace. But I have to give you some important political advice. Joab is a man of blood. He has betrayed me many times. He killed Absalom when I told him not to. He killed Amasa and others. He's a man of blood. And you'll notice, he was lining up with Adonijah. Solomon, don't be silly, foolish, and sentimental. Joab's got to go. He says, likewise, Shimei cursed me. He's, he's a Benjaminite. He was devoted to Saul, the Benjaminite. And I've given him uh, peace during my lifetime. But Solomon, you can't trust him. You're a young man. You're going to be king. This kingdom is going to be fragile. I've been able to keep it in order because of my 40-year legacy here. I'm able to hold the different tribes together. But you cannot risk having a man like Shimei, who is a rebel and will rise up again against you and challenge your authority. You can't have that. And he deserves to die. He cursed the king. And Deuteronomy says, you can't curse the king or you'll die. He cursed the king. So his capital punishment has merely been delayed. You need to take care of that. And he gives him other advice about, uh, about the one who helped him so much uh, in his times of trouble. And he says, you keep him at the king's table. Now, this looks pretty brutal to us. But gentlemen, those who oppose the kingdom of God eventually become your enemies too. You don't know who your enemies are now except the underworld. The devils are your enemies. They're the enemies of God. They're your enemies. So you take out after them with the sword of the Spirit wherever you see them at work. So you're at war right now with spiritual beings. One day, when Jesus Christ comes back physically, you'll be at physical war. We'll be His soldiers in the final battle. And we will take up the cause. And there, everyone will be divided. Sheep and goats. Those who are fighting for the Lord, those who are fighting against the Lord. And I can't think of any more noble task than to be called into that final battle as His humble servants. And here, David is saying, the kingdom does destroy those who oppose the kingdom. And we get a clear warning here. And Solomon, of course, takes his advice, as you see later in the text. God will establish his kingdom. Now look in verses 10 through 12. Lastly, trust in the Lord. And David learned the hard way that God is the one who establishes the kingdom. 
And gentlemen, that's exactly what God does with this Davidic dynasty. Yeah, you go through First and Second Kings, you get to the end of Second Kings, the people go into exile. It looks like a lost cause. But then you have the exilic prophets and the post-exilic prophets, and what are they saying? There's coming another day. The Davidic king is going to be kept and established. Yes, it looks like it's destroyed now, but God has not forgotten His promise. He didn't forget His promise to David and Solomon. He's not going to forget His promise to you that there will be a Davidic dynasty. And gentlemen, that's what it means when Jesus Christ comes back. From the very first pages of Matthew, you see that this is the fulfillment of the Davidic dynasty. This is what God has planned all along to do. And you know, just as Solomon was put on David's donkey to come into Jerusalem, now you know why Jesus got on the donkey to go to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was God's anointed son. He was the one who was to take up the Davidic dynasty. And when the joy of the people uh, was causing the earth to quake, when Jesus ascends into heaven, and even more so when he comes back, the earth will quake again with joy at the Son of God who's been enthroned. And when the enemies of Solomon were quaking in their boots because of the joy of the subjects of Solomon, one day the enemies of God will quake in their boots at the joy that will be ours when the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes back. This is what it means for Jesus to be the son of David. He inherits the kingdom. He is the rightful son. He has lived a perfect life. And David says about him, I mean, I'm sorry, Peter says about him on the day of Pentecost. He says, look, the reason the Spirit has come is because God has enthroned His Son as everlasting King. And Peter said, our father David died and was buried. And you can see his tomb to this day, says Peter. But this son of David has ascended into the heavens. And Peter says, David didn't ascend to heaven. But Jesus, the son of David, ascended to the right hand of God. And David said about him that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And here is the son of David who's ruling forever and ever and ever as the perfect ruler of his people. That's the reason there's such joy in following Jesus Christ. And the earth quakes at the joy of his servants. Even as you go out today in a broken world, it looks like sometimes it has no direction, that God has abandoned it, that it's in chaos. Oh, no, no, no. Don't lose your hope and your faith and your trust in the Lord. He's on his plan. And that king, that son of David, is coming back soon. And you'll see see him with your own eyes and establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Let us pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this privilege to study the life of David. And even as we study even more deeply what the apostles had to say about the meaning of David and our life today, we pray that you will shape us more and more not into the image of David, but into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And help us, O Lord, the ones who have been anointed now to be the prophets in this world. Help us to speak the word that you are the ultimate king of your people and that you have sent your one and only son to rule forever and ever. And may we gladly, joyfully, obediently bring ourselves into submission under the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.